0: I'm Pastor Darrell Curtis, and you're listening to my 63rd Sermon on the Biblical Design of Gender, in which my point is that since marriage is the basic building block of God's program, when we allow Satan to attack our marriages, we are letting him attack God's program at its very root. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit Family Life BC. Good morning on this 13th day of the month of uh, February, the day before Valentine's Day. I hope that uh, everyone has their uh, Valentine offering uh, to their spouse and uh, boyfriend and girlfriend uh, prepared. If not, you have a few more hours that you can work on that. And we're praying that everybody at the conclusion of the day will feel... Uh, blessed by that which they have received. and uh, In keeping with Valentine's Day, we're on our 63rd part in our sermon series on the biblical design of gender. And our text for this morning is the first verse in the 7th chapter of the book of the Song of Solomon. And in the Bible it says this, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter! The curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands... Of a skilled workman God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer gracious God our Father we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit and for his ability to explain your word and Lord we ask you that you would give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty with clarity and with boldness And that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for going to listen to our message for today. And before we begin this next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the end of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds, so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught, and make our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, intelligent manner. And our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of death is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, one of the more fascinating books in the Bible is the Song of Solomon, written by the wisest man that ever lived. The book does not contain any doctrinal principles from which we could determine the manner in which god desires that we regulate our lives nor does this book record any historically significant events from which we could glean insight on the wisdom of god solomon the author was as we have studied in our last few lessons the wisest man that ever lived and after the death of his father david solomon who had taken over the throne of israel appealed to god for wisdom and god responded to solomon's appeal in first king chapter 3 verse 11 and 12. then god said to solomon because you have asked this thing that is wisdom and have not asked long life for yourself nor asked riches for yourself nor asked the life of your enemies but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice behold i have done according to your word See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been any like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And this wise man decided to include this episode of a man speaking of the beauty of his wife's body and a woman speaking of her enjoyment of her husband's kisses in this part of his writings that became part of the scripture known as the Song of Solomon. And in my opinion, the most significant fact about this chronicle of the loving interactions between a husband and wife as they indulge in the act of marriage is the fact that it is in the scripture. The significance of that fact is that this romantic interaction is sanctioned and ordained by the Most High God. And God told us in that foundational passage of scripture with which we are very familiar, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 and 21 through 24. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And marriage is the primary interaction of mankind, the primary building block of society, and the laboratory of love. Marriage is the one relationship in the world that requires us to declare our love before entering into it. Now, marriage is the first biblical relationship. The woman was the second person created in the history of the world, and she was created by God specifically for the man. The woman was created by God specifically to cure the man's problem of aloneness to be the man's companion, to fit with the man like a hand in a glove. And as Genesis 2.24 tells us, therefore uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And this passage of scripture makes it clear to us that the parent-child relationship is designed to be temporary. Children are intended to leave their parents when they reach chronological maturity. But the relationship between husband and wife is not designed to be temporary. Husband and wife are intended to be one for the remainder of their lives. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 19, verse six, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together Let not man separate. And marriage is intended to be a permanent bond between husband and wife and is designed to be the most intimate bond that two people can share, both intellectually and physically. And while I can discuss general intellectual concepts with all of you, the design of God is that only my wife is privy to my most private and intimate thoughts and desires. Now, Jesus was never married, but Jesus had an interesting interaction with his disciples just before his passion experience to demonstrate the concept of oneness that we are discussing as Jesus reassured his disciples that he would overcome the trial that he was about to endure. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 1 through 4, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where you go I know, and the way you know. But Thomas, one of the disciples, did not comprehend that which Jesus was saying. In John 14, chapter 14, verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Thomas, thinking that Jesus was referring to a geographical journey, was ignorant as to the route and destination. But Jesus clarified that he was not referring to a physical move. John 14, 6 and 7 says Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip found this concept of seeing the Father intriguing because Philip did not understand the relationship between Jesus and his Father. So Philip asked in John 14 and 8, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the father and it is sufficient for us. But the relationship between Jesus and his father is this oneness, which is the paradigm for the relationship between a husband and a wife. The relationship between Jesus and his father is such that there is no differentiation between them. Jesus is the incarnation of God in human flesh. We cannot endure the presence of the glory of God while in our fleshly bodies because of the power emanating from God is too great for us. So God encapsulated his power, his glory, and his spirit in the human form of Jesus Christ and sent him to provide a demonstration for us. And Jesus explains in John 14, 9 through 11, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The word that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father Who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. We cannot look upon the glory of God, but we can see the results of the glory of God in the earth. The physical universe exists to make the spiritual power of God observable to man. And Jesus Christ shows us the power of God by his wisdom, by his miracles, and finally, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus and God are one in that Jesus is the physical, earthly manifestation of God. And it is most interesting that although Jesus and God were one and were in perfect agreement, Jesus still had to learn and demonstrate obedience. Paul tells us of Jesus in Hebrews chapter five, verse seven and eight, who in the days of his, when Jesus Christ had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to God, who was able to save Jesus Christ from death. And Jesus was heard because of his godly fear. Although Jesus was a son, Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Although to God, physical death is simply a move of the spirit from one place to another, the physical component of Jesus Christ was still in agony, praying with vehement cries and tears as he asked God to release him from the necessity of his impending physical death. And Jesus suffered the physical agonies of a man while being God, so that the Apostle Paul could assure us that Jesus shared the trials and tribulations of being a man and had to overcome the same negative feelings as any other man. Paul tells us in Hebrews four fifteen, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Thus, Jesus Christ is one with God, and Jesus Christ is one with us, because he shared all the experiences of God as well as those of mankind. Now, Genesis 2.24 tells us, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the point of Genesis 2.24 is that the husband is to share the experiences of his wife, and the wife is to share the experiences of her husband, and the two of them will develop a oneness parallel to that of Jesus Christ and of God the Father. And just as God and Jesus Christ could anticipate and understand one another's actions, Husbands and wives are intended to develop this same ability. But the passage of scripture says, and they shall become one flesh, meaning that they are not one flesh when they first marry, but the oneness is developed over time. And God tells us in Malachi 2.16, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. The dissolution of the marital relationship does violence to the formation of oneness between the husband and wife, tearing it apart. And after a divorce, the two are now two, which is contrary to the plan of God. So hopefully we understand that in the plan of God for the creation of human beings, God designed the husband and wife to become one. The combining of different things into the essential unity is the nature of God, as we can see from the physical world. Nothing in the physical world is made up of one element. We have found that even the things that we perceive as singularities are actually made up of component parts once we develop the technology to sufficiently analyze them and to understand the development of oneness consider a child when he or she is born because of the size of the birth canal god god compacts the head of a child so that it can travel through that space thus the brain of a child is not developed when the child is born and the child only has conscious control over his ability to cry. He can't sit up and take nourishment, but must be fed, changed, and cleaned up. A child's brain develops to its full potential over time, based upon the emotional relationships and educational experiences that the child has. And just as a child's brain is not finished when he is born, a man or a woman's emotional development is not finished when he or she reaches chronological maturity. A man or a woman continues to develop intellectually until he or she is emotionally and volitionally able to make the conscious decision to share his or her life with a person of the other gender, and then the two continue to develop together until they become one. And that is by, the design of God. And so as I said in our takeaway point, God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. We are a cooperative coalition We are designed to become one physically, spiritually, and intellectually. But we must develop our oneness deliberately because our enemy is hostile to us becoming one. And let me say with our fear of successful contradiction that anyone or any organization that postulates that husband and wife ought not become one but ought maintain a sense of independence from one another, is a tool of Satan, our enemy, who lives to break marriages apart. Since marriage is the basic building block of God's program, attacking marriage is attacking God's program at its very root. It is instructive to us that in Genesis 2, uh, 15 through 17, God gave his instruction to the man, the Bible says in the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And although God gave his instruction to the man, the tempter went to the woman. As opposed to tempting the man or tempting them as a couple. Genesis three one through five records, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that in the days that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the tempter did not just plan to entice the couple to disobey God. Had that been the tempter's point, the tempter would have tempted the man it was just as likely that the man would have succumbed to the tempter's argument as the woman did. After all, they both had the same instruction from God. But the tempter's real plan was and is not just to entice the man and the woman to commit sin, but to drive a wedge between the man and the woman in order to destroy the overall plan of god for oneness between the genders so let's recap marriage is god's plan for the society and the marital relationship is the building block by which men and women become one in order for us to become one we must commit ourselves to our marriages and do all that we can to share our experiences intellectually, emotionally, and as Solomon makes clear in this book of the Bible, physically. Now, let us look at the manner in which Solomon and his wife praise one another. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verses 1 through 9 says, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter! The curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a skilled worker. Your navel is a rounded goblet. It lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes like the pools in Heshpons by the gate of Beth-Robin. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel and the hair of your head is like purple. A king is held captive by your tresses. Oh, how fair and how pleasant you are, O oh love, with your delights. This stature of yours is like a palm tree, and your breasts like its clusters. I said, I will go up to the palm tree. I will take hold of its branches. Let now your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples and the roof of your mouth like the best wine. The wine goes down smoothly for my beloved, moving gently the lips of sleepers. And the wife speaks of Solomon in the Song of Solomon, chapter five, verse 10 through 16. My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with burl. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet Yet he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And although we may not understand all the archaic symbolism in these passages of Scripture, the general point is clear that being that the husband and wife desire each other physically and communicate that desire to one another. And the consummation of physical love is the glue that holds husband and wife together as they grow toward oneness intellectually and spiritually. We are so constructed that with physical consummation in marriage, our union becomes stronger, and without it, we drift apart. And my analysis is reinforced by the fact that this romantic and sexual interplay between this wise husband and his wife is recorded, not in some archaic romance novel, but in the scripture. God ordains that the physical act of marriage not be ignored in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4 and 5, when he says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves the fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And how does this lack of self-control manifest itself? A lack of self-control causes fractures in the marital fellowships and makes the husband and wife hostile to one another. Remember that Satan's plan is to destroy the potential oneness in our marriages. Did you know that married couples are not supposed to fight? When people say, well, we have fights like all married couples, they are exhibiting their lack of knowledge and self-control. Just think, why does romance exist if it is not as the glue for a loving relationship. And fighting is not ordained for a loving relationship. At the marriage altar, we never take a vow to fight, but only to love. But often when we have marital fights, the tempter is the instigator, and we may not even really be fighting our spouse. Often we are fighting Because of something that happened outside of the marriage, maybe even before the marriage ever began. Here's an example. Monica began by saying, I've been married for going on seven years and we don't seem to have the ability to stop fighting. But I'm starting to get the feeling that it might be because of me. Usually when I lose control of the fight, I ask him to leave and he tells me, you always run away from the situation and you don't like to face things. Because you didn't have a dad, you don't know how to treat a husband, and blah, blah, blah. I just need some advice. Well, replied her counselor, your husband is correct, isn't he? Maybe so, Monica responded glumly. The counselor continued, Monica, since you've been treating your husband very badly, one of these days when you ask him to leave, he's not coming back. Stop trying to see if he's like your dad. Because whether he's like your dad or not, when you push any man away hard enough and often enough, he will get tired of being pushed away and leave. You aren't the only woman in the world, you know. Monica began, but my thing is, and the counselor cut her off, are you listening to me? The counselor replied. I heard you, said Monica, but my mom was super good to my stepdad who raised me. She would give him back rubs when he came home and everything. Okay, Monica, replied the counselor. You saw your mother give back rubs to your stepdad. What does that have to do with why you're mistreating your husband? Because, said Monica, he left anyway. I'm sure that hurt you and your mom, said the counselor, but answer my question. What does your mom and dad's marriage have to do with why you are mistreating your husband. Monica hesitated and then began stammering. I guess I don't know. You have to know, Monica, replied the counselor. This is your life. If you want to improve, you have to actually think about that which you are doing. You are mistreating your husband. Why? How do you think that your life will be better if you're alone? Monica replied, I "Don't think my life will be better if he leaves. It won't." But Monica probed the counselor, "You're intentionally pushing your husband away. So you must think that your life will be better in some way if he leaves. What is it? Is it that you don't have you won't have anybody demanding anything of you or expecting anything of you? How will you how will your life be better if you don't have a husband?" Monica hesitated again, and then she sighed. I won't be so scared, she said. Scared of what, said the counselor. Scared of him leaving me, responded Monica. The counselor nodded. Monica, that's very insightful. I'm scared that my husband is going to leave me, like my father left my mother, and my stepfather left my mother, so I'll push him away, he'll leave, and then I can say, You see, I was right. That's what you are doing. Monica, the fear of being abandoned is a primal fear. No one wants to be alone, and everyone is afraid of it. The most natural state of human beings is to want to stay connected. Monica started to cry. But no man in my life has ever stayed long enough, she began, and the counselor stopped her. Monica stopped crying. I need you to think, not cry and feel sorry for yourself. And as Monica stopped crying, the counselor continued. There was nothing you could do about your dad or your stepdad leaving. You were a child and you had no way to keep them in your home. But now you are an adult and you have a lot of influence with your husband that you could use to keep him from leaving you. But if you push your husband away rather than using your influence to keep him, your pushing will eventually be successful and he will leave you. It won't be your dad's fault or your stepdad's fault. It will be your fault for pushing him away. You won't be able to blame men because you pushed him away yourself. You, Monica, not men. Monica, marriage is not remedial childhood. You can't use your current marriage to fix your earlier experiences. You had two dads leave you when you were a kid, but to push your husband away as an adult because of your childhood experiences is not reasonable. Your husband is not responsible for your dad, so don't push your husband for that which your dad did. Marriage is a relationship between two adults. You have to put your childhood and your earlier experiences behind you, leave your father and mother, and act like an adult. Do you understand my point? Monica nodded. The counselor continued, Monica, think for a minute. Will a fly stay on a table if you keep swatting at it? Monica said no. The counselor asked, well, will a fly stay on the table if you sprinkle sugar on the table? Monica said yes. The counselor replied, then sprinkle some sugar. Be the kind of wife that he would rather die than leave, and you will never lose your man. For Dallas cowboy cheerleaders could dance naked on his desk, and he'd still come home to you if you treat him well rather than push him away. Do you understand? Yes, Monica responded, that makes a lot of sense. So if you want to keep your man, make him happy that he's so happy that he doesn't want to go to the bathroom because he would have to leave the room that you're in. Okay, Monica smiled. And if you do that, the counselor responded, you'll have an insurance policy for your marriage. Show your husband admiration, respect, appreciation, and a lot of affection and have a good time with him. he'll be counting the hours until he can come home. He married you and he loves you. You couldn't get him to leave you if you treat him right. Why would he want to leave the one person in the world with which he is comfortable, the one that makes him feel like a man, that makes him feel alive, that gives him a purpose for living? So forget about your dads. Stop pushing your husband away and start pulling him in. He could never leave that, and you have the power. Okay, says Monica, I'll do it. And if Monica follows through on her new idea about marriage, she and her husband will eventually become one. But just as in the case of the husband and wife in the Song of Solomon, to decide to put away the past is a personal decision. And Paul made that decision as he tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 15 not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. And God commanded Jesus's death on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins that we have committed. As John 3, 16 and 17 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And Jesus did that which he was sent to do. Through Jesus' passion experience, Jesus became one with God and learned obedience through that which he suffered. And as Philippians 2, 9 through 11 tells us, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let us make the conscious decision to sacrifice ourselves for one another, suffer and become one with one another, ultimately to love one another, emulating the example and following the commandment of Jesus Christ, who told us in john 13 34 and 35 a new commandment i give to you that you love one another as i have loved you that you also love one another by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another and that is our lesson for today let us pray gracious god our father we thank you for this lesson this morning and for installing this episode in your scripture and we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to recognize the ramifications of that which we are doing. Help us, Lord, to forget those things which are behind and look forward to those things which are ahead as we press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Give us the mind, Lord, that we might be able to follow that which you have told us to do in your word. Let us not look back over those things which we have done incorrectly, but let us look forward and resolve to do correctly as we go forward from this point. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us the power of your Holy Spirit to safeguard our minds and keep us from that which would tempt us to stray away from your word. Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.